everything we make, we're going to reinvest into social benefit. We're going to increase wages more. We're going to improve conditions in our supply chain even more. We're going to invest into the most leading environmentally friendly product designs. And we're going to innovate with local researchers and support local communities. You know, maybe that's the direction forward for, for companies to start thinking, well, what's enough? What's sufficient? Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. Today, we're going to talk to a wonderful leader in the, the future of work and business, Erich Sarhan. Erich, did I have that right? That's right. Well done, Linda. Great to be with you. Okay, great. Well, Erich is part of a, a collaboration that began a number of years ago that I'm going to let him share about it's such a rich and wonderful way of thinking about the future of work for all of us that I'm not even going to try and explain it. It's called Donut Economics. And Erich is one of those people, like so many of the people that we interview on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, that sees a future out in front of us all that's possible. And that's what we want him to share with us. You know, the thought leaders that we interview here on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, they are going at some of the toughest problems in the world day after day, and they stay at it because they think the future is bright for all of us. And we need to see what they see. We need to know what they know about getting around obstacles and turning disaster into opportunity. And I have an idea that your view and your perspective will seem a lot bigger after you hear Aaron's many, many, many comments about a new way to think of how work should work in our lives and how business in the wider sense has potential to transform the way we think a future together. A and we can make a future that feels way more collaborative for the entire world. So Yarinch has an amazing background. He, it spans business and government and social enterprise. Most recently, he was the chief executive officer of the World Fair Trade Organization. And that's, you know, as you may imagine, a global network of people who are trying to get enterprises, large and small, to take off in ways that enrich lives and communities for individuals, and then ripple the waves ripple out from there. He spent seven years at Oxfam leading a campaign and advocacy for the future of business. So there's just no end to his background in observing, suggesting, and creating new paths for us all in our lives on, at a micro level and in the world as a, as a scalable notion about the way business should be additive to all our lives. So welcome, Erinch. I'm so glad to have you on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. It's really great to be here, Linda. Thank you for that very generous introduction. Well, it's all over the place. You've got so much going on and you have this, this wonderful history that ties back, I see, to our own lives, our own day-to-day -day lives. Let's start 100,000 foot look in the beginning. And then, then I'm sure through this whole interview, you're going to help us with practical things that we can do every day or even just perspectives that change the decisions we make. So tell us about Donut Economics. So Donut Economics, it's a concept that really tries to provide a new compass for human prosperity. And, and, and this is how it tries to do it, Linda. It, it's, a, it's a concept that recognizes that we live on a planet that's a living planet that has boundaries that you know there's a there's a limit to how much soil we can use how much of the ocean we could deplete how much of the air we could pollute and 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 the resources on on this amazing unique planet have got particular boundaries but it also recognizes that we have a social foundation we also need to provide the basics of life for everybody living on this amazing planet of ours 
So we can't shrink our economic activity below the, the social foundation. We, we need the jobs, we need the energy, we need the food, et cetera. But we can't expand it beyond the planetary boundaries that, that we're also bound by. So between these two concentric circles on the outer circle, planetary boundary on the inner circle, the social foundation, there's a donut-shaped space that is the, the safe and just space for humanity. And it's a little bit of a, a framework that allows us to, to judge whether we're, we're on track or not. And the really sad thing is that we're not. We are in huge overshoot of planetary boundaries and we are hugely under-delivering on the social foundation as we have you know, hundreds of millions of people hungry, et cetera. But, but we, we see hope, we see transformative potential as we adapt to the 21st century. So just to give people a mental picture, because I'm an artist and I think in pictures, to give people a mental picture, so imagine a donut and the, the donut itself is, has two boundaries, the inner boundary and the outer boundary. And the outer boundary is after, past the outer boundary, we're where? We're in planetary overshoot. We, we, we are destroying our planet. So if we're overusing the natural resources on this planet, then over time, it will not be able to sustain life on Earth. Great. And then if there's an inner boundary of that donut, and what's in the inside? Well, if we are shrinking below that inner boundary, then actually we're not delivering on life's essentials for the billions of people on Earth. So not enough food, not enough energy, not enough livelihoods that, that need to sustain us. So the economy kind of has to live between, live between these two boundaries. It's got to not overshoot on the planetary boundary, but not under-deliver on the social foundation. Okay. I love this image. So I hope everyone who's listening to this interview sees that one, one thing that I noticed when I, I just Googled donut economics, and if you put in Google search and then you hit images, there's no end to images. People are curious about this. But I think one of the things that attracted me to this concept is that you can think of this in your own life. You can think of it in the scope of your family, your business, the big business you work in. I mean, these principles about living with, within a donut-shaped space could really be guiding principles for how we run our family budgets, our small businesses, large and small. Let's drop into some of your biggest concepts from, okay, so now we've got the 100,000 foot look. Talk to me about this forest analogy that you used. We had a pre-call, I'll just own that. And Aaron just wowed me with a really, again, a fundamental way of thinking about excess about overshooting the boundaries or undershooting. So I'd love for him to share this throughout the interview because we can keep coming back to a mental picture for ourselves. So talk to me about the forest. So Linda, when we look at the forest, what we see is ecosystems that are in balance. We, we, we see nature working in a way that is generous towards each other. That is, you know, the waste of one thing is food and nutrients for another organism. You know, there's no single entity that tries to grow out of the forest to become a single tree that is the forest. The Amazon isn't leading towards two or three dominant trees. It's, a, it's an organism and everything has got an appropriate size. Everything grows to the right level that allows it to be a functional part of this ecosystem. And then, and then it thrives within that. And it thrives in combination with the other things thriving around it. And forests and, and most of nature, when we look at our ecology, is trying to do that, is, isn't trying to sort of necessarily destroy each other or dominate each other, but work in unison. And when we look at that analogy for what our economy could become and maybe needs to become, then it starts pointing us towards 
the kind of businesses and the kind of economic systems we might need to, to design, where it's not all about competition. It's not all about market share. It's not all about growth of the economy or growth of GDP or growth of profits. It's not all about extracting as much profits out of companies as possible, but it A, allows there to be sufficiency and for businesses and the economy to get to the level that is healthy for, for it to thrive together. But B, for collaboration, which uh, is not necessarily incentivized in our current economic system. So I think it, it really starts pointing us towards solutions and ways of thinking about the way we might need to redesign our economy so that it, it can live within the donut, so that we're not in overshoot of those you know, planetary boundaries that we have to respect, but also is not under-delivering on what we as humans need on this living planet of ours. Can you give us a, a quick example of how this, this works? Because I one of the things that I was impressed in the big picture of what you're talking to us about is this, instead of always trying to make it work, that's that's been our mode, right? That the we're willing to live with business having some other kind of compass about the way business can can keep taking and taking and taking. Whereas we wouldn't accept that same ethos from our neighbor or a, a big business in most of our, uh, most small towns. Or and so, tell us how this works in our ordinary lives. Can you bring it down to that level really quick, and then we'll just keep going back and forth. Yeah, I mean, so if we think of an employer of a company, often they will pay their workers what the market rate is. And rarely will they pay more than what they need to get away with. You know, rarely will they leave money on the table when they negotiate with the farmers they buy from. Rarely will they invest into cleaning the environment or reducing their ecological impacts if nobody's pushing them to do so, no one's going to reward them for doing so. It, it's incredibly rare to see this sort of behavior. It, it exists. And I think the conviction of individuals and leaders sometimes pierces through and allows this sort of more generous, regenerative kind of behavior to happen that does embody some of the things and behaviors we see in, in a forest or in, in thriving natural ecosystems. But it's rare. And, and the reason it's rare is because we've designed businesses to be hyper competitive and to get as big as possible, as quick as possible to beat its competition and to minimize its costs at every turn and maximize its profits at every turn. And that's somehow been accepted a little bit as a almost like a fact of nature. That's just the reality of that's just business. But we've, we've designed businesses. We've created businesses. When we walk around the forest, we don't see you know, publicly listed corporations walking around there with, you know, boards and structures and, and equity listings in the way that we, we see in our economy. These are human constructs. They're vehicles for, for human flourishing. And if it's no longer appropriate for the 21st century challenges where we've got some significant environmental and social issues, then we, we can redesign it. We can make it behave in the way that it needs to behave rather than sort of just be completely wedded to the idea of, of growth and profit, you know, in the same way it has in the, in the past. Yeah, you know, to that point, one of the things I, I wrote down that you said to me was, in the forest, the plants are generous to each other. Is this very, that way, right? Yeah, absolutely could be that way. You know, so if, let's think, for instance, of the uh, electronics industry, where by and large, you know, a lot of us own smartphones. By and large, those smartphones live for a few years. They're often designed to have obsolescence, a built-in obsolescence, where they you throw them out after a few years and you buy a new one. Now, there's a huge ecological 
and social footprint going on in those supply chains. Everything from you know all those minerals that need to be mined and converted into products to to everything that's going on in terms of the carbon footprint, the transportation, etc. It's a huge amount of you know Earth's planetary boundaries that are being used in producing this. But decisions are being made to design this product in a way where they will need to sell you a new one in a few years because that's how you make a bit more money right now. It takes a lot to buck that trend. It takes a lot to be an alternative to that. We do see alternatives to that. There is one great example called Fairphone, for instance, which came out of the Netherlands, which has designed a modular phone. So it has said, you know what, we may or may not make more money by selling you new phones constantly, but we think actually the right thing to do is to sell you a phone where it's going to last as long as possible. You might need to buy a few parts here and there to upgrade it or to repair it, and we'll show you how to repair it. And we think that this is a much more sustainable long-term model. Now, when you look at that, you don't see a company that's set off to compile and to to put up as much money as possible, but one that wants to be successful, commercially viable, but is trying to solve a social and ecological problem, including in its supply chain and the way the workers are sort of treated in its factories or in in the mines that supply some of the raw materials, for instance. So I think, yeah, when you start applying it to businesses, you start seeing all those, those tiny decisions that seem small around, well, how do you design this product? How do I price this product? How do I select my suppliers in my supply chain? How do I engage with the working conditions of people in factories or on farms or mines around the world who contributed to making this product. You know, how, how do I engage with my local community? How do I engage with the retailers that are selling my products? All of these are micro decisions that lead out of the way the company is designed, the, the way it's structured. And we have a choice in the way we can structure the businesses of tomorrow. Now, recently, um, I interviewed a wonderful guy from New Zealand who is talking all about B Corps. And I'm not sure many of us know much about the, the rise of this kind of business ethos that is all about transparency and, and the kind of practices that you're advocating. Talk to us a little bit about the momentum, the direction of business. Is it, is it all just still barreling down the track in the wrong direction? Or are you seeing some light in this world? Because what I talk to people about is that consumers are just, it's obvious they're getting more and more values driven. So I can't help but think there must be people rising up in business to meet that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there is a lot of hope out there. there. There are a lot of innovators. There are a lot of bold, ambitious leaders that, that are bucking the trend from the last century where to be honest, you know, when we started our conversation thinking about that donut picture, that 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 picture with the planetary boundaries and we're an overshoot of, of our planetary boundaries and we're an under-delivery on social foundation. That's our collective global selfie as humanity. That's 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 our situation, right? Like that's currently what we look like if someone outside of Earth looked to us and said, Oh, you're sort of destroying that you're this very unique planet that you're sort of dependent on and you don't seem to be getting the right level of you know social conditions for the people that are living on here either so something's a little bit broken in the way you're dealing with this that would be our our, our current picture but also what we're seeing is a whole host of individuals and organizations that are starting to go, look, we probably need to redesign this because a lot of our institutions, our businesses, our financial markets, our you know, economic regulations, they're designed from last century. And leaders of last century 
didn't have visibility of that selfie. They didn't see the planetary overshoot in the 1950s and 60s. They didn't see the, you know, huge social impact of, you know, anonymized, untraceable global supply chains, which we can get into in a second. But they didn't see those social and ecological challenges that await us if we kept going down that track. But now we do. So now we're starting to wake up to the fact that, right, we've, we need a course correction and we need innovation and we need a new thousand flowers to bloom that are going to be creating those alternatives that are bucking those trends. And certainly amazing movements have been around that are, that are innovating on this. We've got worker ownership models that, that are really on the rise around the world, including and particularly in the US, actually, where a lot of baby boomer businesses are converting into worker ownership. You've got exit to community, which is an amazing way of restructuring the way a community can own a business. You've got social enterprise models, which are saying, look, we're going to reinvest the majority of our profits back into our social mission. We're not actually here to extract. The business needs to be profitable or it needs to be accumulating enough profits to keep going and be commercially successful. But when it's successful, we put it back in to create even more benefit for society and planet. So all these alternatives are out there. B Corp certainly have got some really amazing examples among them as well. I mean, it's happening. There are loads and loads of these alternatives out there, but we're still within an economic infrastructure more broadly that is not designed to foster these models. And it's relying on individual leadership of people to, to buck the trend. So, you know, it's harder to access finance if you want to set up a business like this. It's harder to register. It's harder to, to even, you know, pay your taxes or meet your regulations or meet accounting rules, you know, because we've designed businesses to not be like this in the, previously. And we've created a whole ecosystem to create this old version of companies and the new ones coming up are trying to sort of get off the ground. But I think the next big challenge is, whoa, 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 we need to actually change some of the architecture so it fosters this vision of business rather than the old one. And we can do that, right? I mean, this is back to how we consumers are, are going to be driving this, I believe. Now I'm going to go down to the 10-foot look for you. So the other day I was running out of my house to buy a sheet of plywood over the holidays when all my children were home. And I've got kids all the way through their, their 20s, three kids. And so I said, hey, I'm going to go get a uh, piece of plywood. Anybody need anything at the box store? And all of them shouted at the same time from various rooms in the house, where are you going? And I'm not going to name names, but I was headed off to one place. So I shouted that back at everyone and all in unison, they shouted, no. And then they gave me a nice education <laughs> about what they know, um, right or wrong, about the founders of the three major box stores where you get building supplies. And they insisted I go to particularly one because it fit their ethos and their, their values about making a better world. And these are the decisions I think we're all making more and more often in society where we're saying, hey, I'm going to spend 40 bucks on a sheet of plywood no matter where I go. So a great deal for me, what used to be a great deal was how much you could get for how much money. And now a great deal is how far can your dollars go to making the world a better place? If you're going to spend the $40 instead of trying to get to 35, I think the millennials and the Gen Zers generation is all about where that money starts circulating. I, I think you're right. And I mean, I saw this when I was at the World Fair Trade Organization. I saw this in various other guises as well, that there is a growing ethical market out there and being able to very clearly and concisely tell your story of being ethical and being socially responsible can be a great competitive advantage. I think we're at the beginning of this journey, though, Linda. I think we, we need to get a bit more 
thorough, a little bit more sort of systematic in the way we understand those impacts. I think, you know, some very, these are very complicated companies. You know, I, I, I don't know which box stores were, were, you know, amongst the set of options, but some might be part of conglomerates. Others might have sold off actually the majority of their shares from their founders. Others might have multiple other businesses that they're running and across that behavior might, you know, they might have an ethical brand that's alongside a very sort of lower ethical credential brand. So they're quite, it's a complicated story. And do we all have time to do that analysis? I mean, I, when I was at Oxfam, I ran a campaign called Behind the Brands where we we actually rated and ranked the world's 10 largest food companies, you know, and, and tried to understand across the big issues, the seven big issues of like climate, water, labor rights, et cetera, women empowerment all of these issues how were each of them doing and it was a mixed bag like each had some good bits each had some bad bits and some were you know doing better with some products and not with others and others were you know great on issue a but not on issue b it's quite complicated at the moment and i think what we need is also a step change in the way we understand companies from just the set of behaviors and a set of memorable controversies that that may or may not have been reported on to understanding who owns them how is governance shaped who's on their board you know do, do do workers have a seat on their board does the community have a seat on their board where do their profits go you know do, 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 are their profits reinvested into social impact are they reinvest in the community to create more jobs or are they, are they mostly extracted and paid out as dividends primarily larger you know lion's share going to billionaires you know those sorts of questions of getting getting to the power and the money that feels very very central well you know there seems to be a lot of people with a lot of zeal who would look into those and share it all over social media when they found the answers. I mean, that's the way we're doing it now, aren't we? Yeah, okay. So back to the uh, ordinary people like me, how do I know? How do I operate? When I walked out of the house, I could have sat in my car and looked at what to decide where to go for that sheet of plywood. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I had a very like <laughs> snappy answer for you. So if it's, you know, if you see uh, an I in their name, then do X. And if you see a C, then do, you know, th there isn't, unfortunately at the moment, th there just isn't sort of an overarching way of immediately identifying. There are some rules of thumb, you know, uh, uh, local businesses, ones that are, that are owned and embedded in your community, ones that aren't here today, gone tomorrow, haven't sort of crunched some numbers on a spreadsheet and thought, actually, let's keep production in this state or this city or this country now. And oh, it's a bit cheaper elsewhere. We shut down the factory, go somewhere else where taxes are lower or whatever. Th those sorts of businesses are by and large going to be worse for society and, and our environment. And those that are have got long-term commitment to their communities that have been there for a long time, that are that are going eye to eye with the local with their workers you know whether where the bosses are maybe going to church on sunday and sitting together with with others who are in their company ones where there really is i think that long-term relationship and dependence with the community and, and and vice versa is going to behave differently than ones that are in here today out tomorrow you know the private equity types that are just crunching numbers that, that are going to be shifting people's lives immediately based on some notion of, of maximizing their, their own wealth. So I think that that's a good rule of thumb. Smaller businesses tend to be more like that. You know, they tend to be much more bringing in the human aspect of things. Certainly we have amazing certifications out there that help. Fair trade certification and, and verification can be really useful in understanding how workers and farmers treated in who are actually making and, and growing the products that we're buying. B Corp certification I mentioned, but also others like cooperatives, are by and large just a completely different kettle of fish. You know, social enterprises, 
a completely different world. And some of the, the, the more, I guess, founder-led businesses that haven't necessarily gone down that venture capital route or haven't necessarily said, look, we're going to grow this business as quick as possible, as large as possible, but that have stuck with it and re- retain them as sort of family businesses that, that bring a bit more ethos into it. All of those can, can embody the kind of decisions we're talking about. But to be honest, I don't think we've invented yet the companies of the 21st century. We're still tweaking the 20th century ones. And the ones we need for the 21st century, where we're, we're the first to see selfie and first to realize the challenge ahead i think we're going to be inventing these over the next coming decades and and for that we're going to need an open mind for that we're going to need a bit of innovation among us to to think bigger than what's already present this is at the heart of it really is that um what the goodness exchange and the conspiracy of goodness podcast as a part of the goodness exchange, that's the bigger company that my daughter and I run the goodness exchange. What we're trying to put forward is a a place where people can find each other who want to do just what you're saying, who want to imagine a different future for us all and combine in cool ways, ideas and values and see if we can't make a better way forward. And that is happening. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to, miss something very important that you mentioned it when when I question when I ask you about you know what does the ordinary person do when you're going out the door to get that sheet of plywood you said stay local I was interviewing a wonderful woman who was one of the very first in the local vor food movement. She has an amazing restaurant in Texas in the 1970s that she said, okay, that's it. I'm only going to buy food from local farmers. And she did all the things that are so common now to the local food movement. Anyway, one of the things she's very point blank because she's been at it for so long. <laughs> she's tired and she's, she just wants us to move on. Anyway, one of the things she said was, you know, when it comes to recycling, the first thing we should be doing is recycling our money, spending it locally. That's what grows our community. If you love your community, spend your money locally and then make sure that the dollars that you're, that you're going to spend anyway, nurture the community that you already love. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's lots of flow and effects of of doing it locally because right. because of the human bonds, because of the accountability that that a local business has with its community and vice versa, because of that commitment. So I think there th- that's a really good rule of thumb. And, and local that is particularly smaller business. So if we're thinking retailers, like shops that you're going to, going to a physical shop where you have an interaction, you have a bond, it just brings out a very different, I think, level of possibility versus a big chain shop that, that you know, doesn't necessarily have that, that local ownership. But I think amongst that, we also need to remember that the amazing goodness that comes from international exchange and our global bonds with each other. And it, we also don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here because in a previous life, I did some carbon emissions tracking once for to understand the impact of cut flowers that are grown in, in, in India, uh, sorry, growing in Kenya and near Lake Naivasha, where I was, I was working for a little bit, and versus cut flowers that were grown in the Netherlands for the European market. And those that were grown in Kenya and flown in had a lower carbon footprint than those that were grown on the ground locally in Europe, mostly because of the fact that it just lends itself to flower cultivation. It lends itself to horticulture in in some of the the tropical parts of the world. And replicating that locally in the global north, in developed economies, sometimes imposes huge costs 
environmentally. So, you know, we also need to realize that we're going to have an, a, a global mix of, of trade, and that's fantastic. That that can stop wars, that can create exchange of cultural views, that can have all sorts of bonds and flow-on effects that we've enjoyed, like in the development of our societies. We, we don't want to completely close ourselves off and ruin those bonds. But at the same time, I think treasuring and valuing th those local bonds as well, where, you know, those local independent shops are going to, I think, have a really huge role to play in, in the future as well. Terrific. And that, that's the way most of the best solutions are. They bring a diversity of access and ideas together. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. And I'm going to talk about just that, how we bring more, more ideas into our lives. And when we come back, we'll, we'll get to some practical tips on, for people and how you see us interacting in what I, what I, a topic that I don't think most people know a lot about, which is supply chain. So we'll be back in just a minute. Dr. Linda here. If you are hoping the world is a lot better than what we see on the news and social media, and if you've been overwhelmed by the misery and negativity coming from the screens in your life, I've got a wonderful connection for you. What I've learned after almost a decade of curating the internet for insight and innovation is that there is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about yet. And that's what led me to create this podcast. And then I co-founded the Goodness Exchange. The Goodness Exchange is an amazing place on the internet now where you can enjoy unlimited access to hundreds of articles that give you a more complete, positive perspective about the state of the world. You can listen to exclusive bonus content from this podcast with our guests who are knee-deep in solving some of the world's most vexing problems, and yet they still think the future is bright. We need to know what they know. And at the Goodness Exchange, you can explore a feed of exclusively good news and recommended other kinds of content created by the Goodness Exchange community. No one with good ideas and good intentions need feel alone again. You are right to hold out hope for humanity. Millions of people are out there creating a better world, and we have created a gathering place for all that wonder. Who knows what's possible now that there's a place on the internet created to bring out our best impulses and our collective genius. To explore the home for goodness on the internet, visit goodness-exchange.com backslash membership. Thanks. Okay, we're back. So you've mentioned the word supply chain a couple of times. And I find that I only know about supply chain and supply chain economics and all that because I have two engineers in my, in, among my kids. So tell us why we should care about the words supply chain. Well, we should care because the supply chain is where the products that we love and enjoy are actually made. It's where they where it actually comes from. So we might have brands that we're really loyal to. We might have fashion brands, food brands, etc., that that we we love and adore, and we like buying their products. But really, really rarely are those brands actually making those products. Like almost never does that occur in the modern economy anymore. So instead, they would have supply chains. These might be complex supply chains. They might buy from a guy who buys from a guy who buys from a guy. You know, where there's a factory that's a couple of nodes away 
which then has got multiple inputs. Someone's making the cotton, someone's making the button, someone's making the zippers. There are raw materials that, that are coming into that. So the supply chain is all of that, all of those components and layers and levels that have gone into making a product that often then lands in our, in our supermarkets or in our retail outlets or online under often a different brand. So we need to, I think, recognize that brands have become slightly abstract entities, you know, in, in the 21st century, where actually what matters is probably, you know, the people that, that, that have sewn that, that shirt together, the, the people that have grown that tomato, the people that have, you know, worked to, to, to bring together that ketchup or, or whatever it is that you're buying. And, and they might be making for multiple brands. They might be making for a whole host of different companies for the local market, et cetera. But it just lands in our shelves as under one brand, under one name, and, and that's the one we interact with. So supply chain actually opens up the reality of the impact that is going on, the reality of the production, the real economy is happening in the supply chain. All the other stuff, the marketing and the finance and people sitting with spreadsheets and advertising and planning, a lot of that's happening under the brand and, and, and the company in the global north. The production and the making is happening elsewhere. That's the bit that actually makes the products that we love. Okay. So on a day on in our daily lives, we might love a certain brand. I don't want to pick on anybody in particular, but I think what you're telling us is that there's a future where we might be able to do a little research and find out through transparency and trackability where, where people get their all the raw materials to get that thing that we that we buy and love. For instance, I'm looking at the way Patagonia operates. I you might know a thousand things that are questionable about Patagonia in particular, but if we're going to have to pick on a brand, Patagonia is trying very, very hard to make sure its supply chain is right with our future. Am I wrong about that? No, you're absolutely right. It is. It's, okay, it's so, above and beyond. Yeah. What I know a little, little bit about is that turns out textiles are part of this gigantic waste, waste stream um, that we most of us would not think about textiles and clothing, the materials raw and afterwards um, being part of a, a giant waste problem. But uh, Patagonia is trying to address that. They are always trying to honor fair trade policies. Talk to us about how a company like, uh, like Patagonia maybe at least have elements and working hard to try to be what the future looks like for big business. Yeah. I mean, a company that, that is genuinely interested in the conditions in, in its supply chain is going to do a number of things. Firstly, it's going to create longer term partnerships with its suppliers. So what, what we've ended up with as well is where, you know, there's a, a product description that goes to a whole host of a different factories that might make that for you and whoever bids lowest and has it seems to, to, to do the right quality gets the contract and next year it might be a different factory next month it might be a different factory so you're you're playing off factories against each other to try to drive down prices that leads to a huge amount of problems so for instance if you're a worker in a factory say in, in east asia south asia latin america africa and you're working one of these companies, they don't know if they're going to have an order again in a few months' time. So they're probably putting you in a, in a temporary contract. It might even be day-to-day -day employment. So you've got no certainty in your life. You don't know if you're going to have a, a, a job next week. And that's because the company that's buying from them, the brand that is often lauded and has got a fantastic public image, has not made a commitment to them long-term, has not said, look, we're, we're, we're in, we're, let's have a five-year commitment. We're going to work together to, to reduce 
the waste. We're going to work together to increase wages. We're going to work together to minimize the environmental impacts. And we're going to make sure we get to the right quality and to the right prices. But look, we're with you through thick and thin. So that's what the best companies are doing. They're, they're picking their supply. And if they can tell you who their supplier is, they can tell you who their factories are, then actually that's the clue. Because uh, you know, you asked earlier, how would you make a di- make a distinction between who you're going to buy with? Look at how much information they're providing about where is their product from. Do they know who's even making? Some of the brands barely know themselves where it's made. You know, they've sent it to an agent who's then commissioned a bunch of factories to do bits and pieces, and God knows what's going on. You know, behind the scenes, and actually, that's convenient. We'd rather not know. Something sometimes, you know, like if, if you're the brand, you'd rather not feel like you're going to be held to account on everything that's going on in in the production centers and people's lives down there. So look at who are they publishing factory lists? Are they telling you where, where stuff is made? Are they, you know, there are some companies, some businesses. So if you go to, for instance, the Fair Trade Federation in the United States, you'll see a lot of them know the artisan who made it, not just the, the enterprise and the business and the workshop and the, the factory, but they, they'll know the artisan. They'll know the individual person who's sewn that 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 shirt or who's created that that handicraft product. And that level of knowledge about production is probably a best clue about how engaged that that brand is with what the reality is in their supply chain. Okay. So that that's a wonderful little insight to, you know, when we when we're deciding to pick something up, a new jacket or what have you. It's just to think beyond holding that thing up and that it's $10 cheaper here than it may be somewhere else. That $10 may be the difference between, you know, growing a, a, a landscape wherever the, it, this jacket is produced that's healthy for the people who live there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think when we start looking at the price of things, then we start also uncovering a whole host of other issues because we have created an economy that we're starting to now lift a lid on. As you said earlier, you might not want to get to the $35 plywood. Maybe you're happy with the $40, but you want to know more. You want to know, is is my money doing good? Is it having a positive impact? And you know, for a long time, we haven't asked those questions. We thought cheaper was better. And the prices we got to make it impossible to pay someone enough to meet the basic needs of life, You know, which is a living wage for, for those that know that terminology. But they make it impossible to farm that cotton in a way that is sustainable. They make it impossible to take measures so you're not polluting the rivers. They make it impossible to do this, you know, to, to minimize waste and to, to take all sorts of measures that are good for people and planet. So the price is actually sometimes that the consumer is paying is also locking in a model of unsustainable production. So beginning to ask that question about, right, what's the price of sustainable production and, yeah. and what, what then needs to be paid? But then making sure that, you know, once you pay that, that it doesn't just go to a brand that's greenwashing or making huge claims. And then the supply chain looks exactly the same as previously, but then they're actually disclosing and they're, they're passing that on. They're making, they're, they're, they're building these thriving long-term partnerships so that, you know, that global picture, that global selfie we talked about in terms of our planetary footprint and our, and our social foundation. Well, that's one that we all have to own. We live on the same planet. So if it's happening in the supply chain, if carbon emissions are happening in India or in Peru or in you know Tanzania, it's the same thing. It's the same planet that that's going to be boiled that we're all living on. So we can't hide from these facts anymore. We just need to engage with with supply chains and the global economy in a different way. And I look at it. We may be more powerful in this than we think. For instance, you know, sweeping 
global thought processes that that change. It was not that long ago, all certainly all the years when I was growing up, if you said, I got such a great deal, if you said those words to someone, what you meant was that you got the most you could possibly get volume wise for the littlest amount of money. You could say a restaurant, you know, they get, brought me a plate this big of spaghetti or whatever it is. A great deal. The definition of a great deal for, I would say, baby boomers and some Gen X that 30-year span of consumers right now, that older span, it is a way different definition of a great deal than what I see my college-age kids thinking. They think if they're going to have to spend $400 on a pair of eyeglasses, that is just what eyeglasses cost. They're over it. (laughs) They're saying a great deal is if I spend that $400 with a company that's also going to give a pair of eyeglasses to somebody in need. That is the new definition of a great deal. And as that kind of mindset catches on and becomes the new norm, I can see consumers being a lot more powerful than than we've thought of ourselves. Add that to the to the crazy ease with which the the younger generations have with technology and discovery, using technology to discover or un, I would, I don't want to use a negative term here, but discover and disclose folks who are trying to greenwash. I think there's a combination, a winning combination there in the future for us all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right that we are opening the right conversations. You know, right. we are now opening new possibilities. And I think the next level is going to be thinking about not just something memorable that a business does that is good. And, you know, giving buy one, give one free is, is definitely yeah. a model that is that is effective and it's memorable and we know immediately that's a good thing. But also I think start to look at, well, how are they behaving towards nature? How are they behaving towards work? And that doesn't necessarily mean we need a PhD in understanding sort of supply chain labor rights or understanding sort of ecological impacts of complicated global supply chains. But it does mean we start asking the next level of question of going, look, how are you designed as a business? Are you designed to make trade-offs in favor of social and ecological issues or are you you designed to maximize your returns? And are you working to just make the richest in our society as rich as possible and and maybe have a small marketing gimmick here and there that draws us in? So I think there's going to be a constant kind of evolution as, you know, some of the more cynical players will will, will take this on and will, will also you know, greenwash themselves by, by doing some gimmicky things that will be memorable and talked about. And I think we'll, you know, the more ethical and, and, and conscious consumers will catch them out and, we'll, you know, we'll get more sophisticated and then they'll move. And, and eventually we'll get to a point where what we're asking for is pretty watertight. And it's amazing. You have to change transformatively or you need to walk away and let the others deliver us the product or service because they're actually designed to do this in, in the right way. So that's the evolution I think is going to happen. It's going to be messy. You know, we're going to, the things that we thought were really good a couple of decades ago is going to be very different. The things that we really care about now in a couple of decades will seem tokenistic and, and there'll be, you know, a bigger and more sophisticated lens that we start. I mean, look, look at what's happened with plastic. You know, yeah. 10 years ago, everything was wrapped and triple wrapped in plastic. Now everyone's falling over themselves to try to demonstrate they're plastic free. And I think that'll evolve, you know, and, and I think people start thinking about other factors in, in, a, in, in just as a transformative way. So it's a journey we're on. What I would really ask people to do is, is don't give up on this. Don't feel like, wow, it's complicated. We push it aside. No, it, it's complicated. 
complicated. We we can do little bits that help and then we'll get better and the conversation will develop and we'll do a little bit more and we'll do a little bit more. We don't have to get to the gold standard where everybody's absolutely perfect tomorrow. But it, as long as we stay engaged in that conversation, the bar will keep moving and people will, will keep transforming their businesses. Ah, that's lovely. That's exactly the kind of confidence that we need to hear from people that are working at your level in society is that it's possible. Now, you've mentioned the word design about five times. (laughs) And I remember we had this wonderful part of our our initial chat was about design barriers. And I loved the, the optimism in many of the things that you mentioned to me as far as design barriers and what we can move to, creating a different kind of idea ecosystem. I just love that concept. Talk to me about this. Yeah, I mean, so I, we, we can think of a lot of parts of our lives that, that are designed. You know, our homes are designed. Our cities are designed. Our furniture is is designed. You know, there's, there's lots of things that, that we design. We think, what do we need and how do we, how do we create this thing to meet the needs of humans? Well, businesses themselves also can be designed. And the current design we have that we've inherited from last year is, from the last century, sorry, is that business is there to make as much money as possible, as quickly as possible for its shareholders. It's the ideas from, for those who are familiar, from, from Milton Friedman, you know, who, talk, who said the business of business is business. You know, that, that's what they do. They make, they make as much money as possible. That's what it's designed to do. Don't expect it to behave benevolently or generously. Don't, be, don't expect it to make trade-offs in favor of social and ecological interests when it's got a clear commercial agenda. It does what it does and do the other good bits outside of business. That was that was the design of business. Now, for a long time, we ignored the fact that this is the inherent design. This is the DNA of the company. And we tried to pretend like little tokenistic things that happened here and there were sufficient and that showed us we were going the right track. And then we start seeing, actually, we're not. We're, we're, we're not moving as fast as we need to. And actually, a lot of a lot of things are getting worse. Our carbon emissions are getting worse. Our you know poverty is just as entrenched. Inequality is growing among individuals and societies. So there's something broken in the way that business is designed. And there are lots of great people in every business. I mean, I've worked in multinationals. I'm sure many of you know, know people across many businesses that are amazing human beings that want to do good. I think it's in our nature to be good. But then we get put into these machines that say you can only do good if you can show you'll make more money by doing good. And that's the wrong design. That's the wrong incentive structure. And it sort of beats out the humanity out of us. It, it asks us to check our ethics at the door as we walk into the office. It asks us to you know, ignore our, our basis instincts that actually for me to thrive, we all need to thrive, that really unequal societies are more violent and their health outcomes are worse and they're more unstable and it's bad for everybody. That actually, if we destroy the planet, it's bad for all of us. You know, we don't get to Mars and the moon aren't great places to live. You know, I'm not sure if you've seen the photos, but there aren't beautiful <laughs> scenes up there. So we're all we're all in this together. You know, so we can't there's no point growing the you know our, our bank accounts while we destroy planet and destabilize society. There's a, there's a really nice comic that comes to mind where people are sitting in this post-apocalyptic universe and they're sitting around a campfire and there's a guy there with a, with a tie that's a little bit loosened and he's whispering to all the others around this campfire that, yes, we destroy the planet, but for a beautiful moment in time, we maximize returns to shareholders. And that's the design of business currently is that we must maximize returns to shareholders and we can design it differently. 
you know, and, and we can have worker co-ops. We can have businesses that are putting their money back into their social mission where we, we can have organizations that have a concept called steward ownership, where, you know, the ownership has locked it into a purpose-driven model that says, look, we're not going to compromise on our mission. We can have all sorts of community-owned organizations and hybrids of all of these different alternatives. And those designs are endless. So I think that the work that, that I'm doing, that, that I'm trying to pioneer and, and trying to spearhead with so many people around the world is what do those future business designs look like? How do, does management look? Who gets to own it? Who gets the money? Who gets the priority? Who gets the profits? How does it get reinvested? Who gets to decide the product offerings and the, and the designs of the business products and services? And all of those are, are, are up in the air for us to shape. And it's not an either or. I, I don't think at, at the highest level, this this rethink about business is asking anyone to stop caring about profits, right? No, a, a bankrupt business is no good for anybody. It doesn't exist. So right. th- there's, a, there's just a vast difference between a company that says, I want to be sufficiently profitable and then do as much good as possible. And a company that says, I will keep making as much money and more money and more money and more. It's a definition of greed. I mean, I hate to use the G word, but to be completely unhappy and unsatisfied with no matter where you get to. I mean, I've worked in a company where if you meet your sales targets, they grow the next year. You meet them again, they grow the next year. If you meet your dividend and, and profit targets, they grow again next year. It's endless. It never stops. You know, And, and that design is something unhealthy. But if we go back to the forest, you won't see that design in a forest. Yet, you, you also need to be in the black. You need to be a business that is is thriving, that is flourishing. But that's that's a vastly different kind of business than one that is just unsatisfied with no matter how much its profits are, that it always wants more. And maybe it's that definition of flourishing that is at the at the heart of the way we need to think about our role in this big giant monster uh, right now. Is that if we are looking for sport to do business with companies that are doing the right thing for all of our futures, you know, we we're, we can celebrate a, a company that is incredibly that is flourishing incredibly well because they have honored the future and been clever enough to figure out their supply chain and all the other variables so that they can do good business and make the future better. It's not a, it's not black or white. It's not either or. No, absolutely. And I, and I think it's a matter of us starting to realize that there's just a lot of choice we have as consumers, as investors, as workers, as citizens in shaping this agenda in our future. It's not a given. This hasn't hasn't happened to us yet. Our future hasn't happened. The future of our economies haven't happened. They've evolved. They've evolved throughout. I mean, look at the 20th century and all the different changes that have happened in the way that economies work, the way agriculture and manufacturing and all the big changes that, you know, that, that, that have happened, that it'll keep changing. So that change is really in our hands. We can, the way we invest, the way that we you know, consume the way that we we live our lives. And 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 also, I mean, I think going back to you know inspirations from nature, we can also think about the limits to it to growth. That you know it's it's an unhealthy organism that wants to grow forever. So what is the right size for different businesses? You know, maybe some businesses it's it's good for them to be at two hundred thousand uh dollars a year and others need to get two hundred million, but not 
every business needs to inherently keep growing. And there, there was an individual I mentioned to you, Dr. Linda, when we spoke that I met in India, a gentleman who, who runs Last Forest, one of the most inspirational social enterprises, fair trade enterprises that, that I worked with in my time, who once pulled me up when I was saying, all right, how do we make you bigger? How do we scale you up? And he said, look, Garage, maybe I might be around the right size. And rather than make me a hundred times bigger, why don't you make a hundred of me? And that really clicked. That was a real sort of light bulb moment for me when I realized, you know, growth for growth's sake is not a healthy precondition. And uh, we can be very deliberate about saying, look, this is the right size. And maybe businesses need to set a target. Say, look, this is how big we need to be. We don't want to be bigger than this. That, that's sufficient. After that, everything we make, we're going to reinvest into social benefit. We're going to increase wages more. We're going to improve conditions in our supply chain even more. We're going to invest into the most you know, leading environmentally friendly product designs. And we're going to innovate with local researchers and support local communities. You know, Maybe that's the direction forward for, for, for companies to start thinking, well, what's enough? What's sufficient? And that's, that's a shift, right? We don't have to just keep growing for growth's sake. I think that's at the at the bottom, uh, at the at the foundational level for most of the people I know who are in the great resignation, Aaron, I, I really see that people are saying, you know, I need this much money to have a quality of life I want. I, I just yeah. don't need to keep growing and growing and growing and growing my family budget or my, you know, my, my footprint. <laughs> like how many toys do we need? And I think that p- pandemic will be looked at 20 years from now as the opportunity that individuals took to reassess and, and look at their lives and their working lives and their personal lives as, as must be generative, must be generative. And that involves what we spend our money on, what we bring in and out of our homes as far as creating waste and bringing new things in and all that. So can we wrap up this conversation with a little bit about how you see this as sort of the possibilities that you see if we only knew what you could see this path being a little bit more I don't know, have more people embracing these kind of ideas. What do you yeah, I, mean, I think if we only knew the power we have across the different hats we wear and the fact that we can use that power to bring what probably feels natural and intuitive but is kept out of policy discussions and business decisions and investment decisions, which is that the economy is a construct that lives within society and society is a construct that lives within our planet. And that's the right order in which to see things, that the economy only lives if society lives and society only lives if our planet lives. And with that mindset, we can shift a whole host of the art of the possible in remaking an economy that works for this century, not for last century. And really realizing, I think, our power as consumers, investors, as as workers, as entrepreneurs, but maybe most critically as citizens. Ah, that is that is just a really super way to sort of organize your thinking. I can see that on a micro level in my own life as I'm trying to decide whether to make a purchase. To yes. think of it in terms of, hey, this thing, this, this new vacuum cleaner, whatever it is, that's that's what I was running out to buy today. It was a new vacuum cleaner. How bad is the old one? What's going to happen to the old one? But I've been so, uh, it's a, how's the other one made? How if I think of it in the scope of the planet, and then society, and then business, and that doesn't take that big a leap with my head. Maybe I'm not going to go get that vacuum. 
the one I have. Yeah, uh, maybe you contact your pension fund and ask them, you know, actually, where are you putting my money? You know, and, and maybe you, you talk to your employer if, if, if you've got a full-time job and say, look, where does our product come from? And, and why don't we put more information in our, in our reports around the factories and the conditions and the people making the products we're selling? You know, all these are questions I think we, we can ask because we do have we do have agency, we do have power. And, and maybe as, as you said earlier, Dr. Linda, the, the pandemic might be the great circuit breaker for us. That is so true. Okay. I want folks to check out, if only to like get a mental picture of the insight that Erinch is talking about with donut economics, just Google that and then look for an image. Where can people connect with your ideas more and more, or where would you like people to go next? So donuteconomics.org is, is our, our website. We have a platform there where thousands of people from around the world have just joined us as ordinary citizens who, who are, want to engage with the future of our economy and for whom, you know, we can, as a together, collectively help demystify some of this stuff and, and start taking local action. So people are jumping on to create neighborhood organizations, to create city level, town level initiatives that want to engage with the future of, of their economy. So there's a lot of grassroots action started to, to, to come up. You'll, you'll see a map of the community there. You'll see organizations that are involved in this work around the world. And uh, donuteconomics.org, it's spelt in the British way. So D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T is the uh, organization, but uh, I'm sure it'll come up if you, if you Google Donut Economics and, uh, and do join, do engage. And also with other movements as well that, that are just bringing new perspectives about what, what's possible in our economies. Oh, that's fabulous. You know, I may even take that little section of the podcast and when we edit it and use that more near the beginning. This community concept is how we're going to change the world by coming together. This is what the goodness, the goodness exchange is about. You know, the way, the way we see it, there are a million points of light out there. This is the message of the goodness exchange is that there are literally millions of people doing the right thing in this world, but their work, their ideas are not rising to the top of the news or our online lives. So we don't, we think the world is all doom and gloom, but it's not. And we have to come together and we're trying to do what we can at the goodness exchange to bring people with good intention and good ideas together. And I love this fact that a a community is growing around donut economics. So thank you so much for your work and making the world a better place. Absolute pleasure. Take care. Okay, great. Well, thank you for joining Aaron and I. We hope you'll visit the Goodness Exchange and, and become a part of the community there. I hope that all the connections that Aaron and I gave you today to goodness and progress carry you through your week and you start finding all the joy and wonder that we talk about here on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Thanks. Thanks.